the unseen God really does exist. Um, the Bible assumes the existence of God is self-evident. And it tells us that God has made himself known to all people. The existence of God is self-evident. It's, it's not something that's hidden. It's not something that should be confusing to anyone. The Bible does talk about, as I explained last session, that sometimes there are, there are moral reasons or there are emotional reasons that get in the way of believing in God. I think one of the great atheists of the 20th century is Isaac Asimov. And he made a startling uh, uh, admission when he said that he tried for many, many years to be an atheist for intellectual reasons, and he finally concluded that it was impossible to do so. And then he admitted, I'm an atheist purely for emotional reasons. And so I hope no one here has any emotional reasons standing between them and faith, for, faith in God. But you might have some legitimate questions. You might really wonder. After all, we live in a world that is dominated by atheist agnostic thought. Despite all the surveys out there, despite all the polls that talk about how many people believe in God, how many people uh, have faith and so on, there is this, uh, a cultural norm that seems to uh, hover over our United States, our culture, to live as if there is no God in our education, in our entertainment, in, in, um, in our lives. It's kind of like faith in God is a hush, hush, hush thing. And so practically, we often ask, act this way. Of course, in the area of, of education, some people have this thought that uh, science rules and they define science in such a way that you could never believe in God. There's a story about a professor once at a large state university and, uh, and he taught a science class. And on the first day of class, he'd had evidently a run-in with some other Christians in the past. So on the first day of class, he, he uh, came in and he announced, if you're a Christian, I want you to stand up. Well, about seven or so of the students in this large lecture hall stood up. And, uh, and they were on the spot. The professor says to them, Have any of you Christians ever seen God? As you might expect, they were quiet and actually a little bit intimidated. Have any of you ever heard God? Does, does God talk to any of you Christians out there? Have you ever heard God? Silence. <laughs> Anyone ever smelled God, tasted God, or touched God? They all stood there silently. The professor responds, well, as far as I'm concerned, this is a science class. We don't believe in anything unless we have seen it with our own eyes, tasted it with our own mouth, or our own, touched it, smelled it, heard it for ourselves with our five senses. As far as I'm concerned... Your God doesn't pass the test. He's not there. Sit down. I don't want to hear from any of you the rest of this semester. And as you might imagine, they all kind of slinked into their seat, having been put into their place. All except one. One, one brave fella remained standing. The professor looked at him. What is it? He said, Professor, I gladly take my seat, but may I just ask a brief question, make a simple observation first. Be quick about it. What is it? Professor, I just would like to ask if you've ever seen or heard or tasted, smelled or touched uh, your own brain. Why, of course not. Why do you ask? Well, Professor, by your criteria, we must assume you don't have one. 
And uh, down he went, and I don't know what grade he got that class. So there's lots of questions as I think about this. Question one, how do you know God exists? You've never seen him, have you? Answer. You know, there's many things that we've never seen, and yet we believe because there's evidence for them. For instance, no one's ever seen, heard, touched, tasted, smelled radio waves, but they're all around us. You know, even the wind, you, don't, you feel the effects of the wind. There's all kinds of things uh, in, in, in subatomic particles that we know, we believe, we trust. There's evidence for them, though we've not seen them. I believe there's evidence for God. And I make with a person who asks for this evidence just some basic, uh, basic, common sense, reasonable questions. Matter of fact, yesterday at Iowa State, there was a young lady there who said she'd been an atheist until she was 19 years old. And now she'd become a believer in God. And she said, and, and, and this other atheist said, why? And she said, because it just is common sense. And she made the very argument that I'm going to make here. And I'd like to ask, in the next five seconds, can anyone in this room give me evidence uh, for the existence of an author? I guess that's not the way it reads on there. Book is evidence of an author. So let me just ask you. I gave away the answer, didn't I? In the next five seconds, I ask on campus, can anyone give me evidence for the existence of an author? And of course, what is the evidence? A book. You don't need to go meet an author. You don't need to go introduce yourself and do research about the existence of an author. The existence of a book is proof that an author exists because we could not have a book without an author. A building is evidence a builder exists. A watch is evidence a watchmaker exists. As a matter of fact, everything we have, a camera is evidence a camera maker exists. A shoe is, make, is evidence a shoemaker exists. A shoestring is evidence a shoestring maker, whatever you call them, exists. Everything we have, everything we know of that has order and design and serves a function and purpose Everything that we, we, that we know of, it had a, a, a designer, someone intelligent mind behind it. And so therefore, it is only common sense and reasonable to assume that a creation is evidence of a creator. Well, that leads to other questions. Matter of fact, anyone who's taking a philosophy class knows in the next question, if everything needed a creator, then who created God? Basically, they're just pushing it back. They're saying every, if, if everyone had a creator, then someone had to create God. And we know God wasn't created, so your argument doesn't work. But it does work. Who created God? Answer, no one. God is eternal and self-existing. And he is not subject to the laws of the physical universe. What do we mean by this? When Moses wanted to know God, and he said, what should I say your name is? God said, I am that I am. That's a strange name, isn't it? You know, what's your name? My name is I am. What's he saying? I, I am the focal. Everything finds meaning and purpose in relation to me. I don't define myself in light of someone else. All that there is, all of creation defines its meaning, its purpose, its identity in relation to me, God is saying. 
But this idea of who created God, he presents himself as an eternal, unchanging, self-existing God. When we make the claim that a book needs an author, and everybody knows that, a building needs a builder, a watch needs a watchmaker, glasses need an optometrist, whatever else, when we make that claim, we're only saying that applies to the physical universe. God is a spirit. God is not subject to the laws of the physical universe. I mean, God's not subject to gravity, is he? God is not, God is eternal, he's not subject to time. God had no beginning, and though everything in the physical universe had a beginning, God would not be subject to that. So who created God? No one. But it doesn't violate our argument, because our argument only relates to the physical universe. Question, but how can you know that it's the Christian God? a good question some people say okay i'll believe in some higher power or maybe uh, you know there's all kinds of religions out there why would you think it's the christian god that was the creator answer the creation bears witness to the christian god this is what we read and saw in the verse here a few minutes ago in romans chapter 1 verse 20 that god's god has made himself known through the creation and that if a person takes time to really stop and look and think about the world that we live in, they will come up with, the Bible says they would have no excuse not to come up with the Christian God. Let's give some examples. God is the great first cause. And I would say that it makes sense when we think of cause and effect relationships that the, the ultimate first cause of limitless space must be, what would you think? Anyone? infinite I'll, I'll be thinking i'll give you a couple more here in a minute the first cause of limitless space it's reasonable to assume must be infinite the first cause of endless time must be eternal the first cause of boundless energy must be what would you think all-powerful or if you're a real theologian omnipotent which simply means all-powerful, um, omnipotent. The first cause of infinite complexity must be all the knowledge. I mean, you, you look at the, gosh, we don't even, how much do we not even know yet? The first cause of infinite knowledge and complexity must be, what would you think? Omniscient, all-knowing. Now, when we go this far, there's a lot of, there's a lot of religions that could meet into this. Or could, could fit this. A lot of religions say, yes, we believe that the Creator is eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, um, uh, and omnipotent. I said that. And infinite, whatever. You know, we believe that there are these big all and omni stuff. We all believe that. Many religions do believe that. Not all, but many religions do believe that. But we begin to take the same reasoning, the same thought processes, and we begin to narrow down now where not every religion would agree. So I ask you this. The first cause of life must be living. Some people say I, they believe in some energy force out there. But I would say that the first cause of life, it is reasonable to assume that something that was not living did not create something that is living. Carrying that further, the first cause of love must be Loving. And we say, wait, the first cause of love 
As you think about it, I believe the, the most ultimate drive in all human beings is to love and to be loved. People will do anything for love, and to show, both to show it and to receive it. And why? Where does this come from? Where, where did, 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 is there some unloving God up there that every human being has had instilled within them a desire to be somehow more moral, more loving, more upright, more good than our Creator? You know, not all religions present God as loving. Some religions have dual gods. One's loving, one's not, one's good, one's bad. Some religions present God as generally benevolent, generally nice, but not personally loving. Kind of like, you know, the President of the United States. I, I think he, he, he's, he wishes good for all of us in our country. But he doesn't even know me. He doesn't have any personal emotion and affection for Tom Short. But I'm sure he would like Tom Short to be prosperous and safe and happy and stuff like that in a general sense simply because I'm a citizen of his country. Many people see God as like a benevolent king but not like Christianity, a personal God who is interested in individuals. The first cause of personality must be personal. You begin to come up with a God that is not only omnipotent, omniscient, infinite, eternal, but a God who's personal, who's loving, who cares about people. You begin to wind down to there's not very many religions whose God fits this, this uh, description that we see in the world around us. But it doesn't end there. I would contend that the triunity of God is also seen in our universe. There's only one religion that relates to, that, that thinks of God as, as, uh, as a trinity or a one God but three persons to that. Do we see that in our world? I believe so. What, where? We see that our universe is made up of three things. Space, time, and matter. Right? Space, time, and matter. Space is defined in three dimensions. Height, width, and depth. Time is defined in three tenses, past, present, future. Matter is observed in three states, gas, liquid, solid. And I believe that the more you stop and look at our universe, the more you see the testimony, the handiwork of God. Now, by the way, does the fact we have uh, you know, space, time, and matter prove the Trinity? Of course not. Of course not. We believe in the Trinity because it's taught in the Bible. It was revealed to us by God. But if you look around at the universe, one of the claims of God is that His handiwork is everywhere. And He says people have no excuse not to believe in Him because His handiwork is everywhere. And, and it, it, it doesn't prove all of these things, but it certainly, as I said earlier, is reasonable to believe this. There's other questions about God. One is, you know, one that, that confuses many a person if God is all-loving and all-powerful, why is there evil in the world? Uh, there are some classes, some universities in America, where you'll be taking a course, often an introductory course or maybe a philosophy course, but a, a, a general course of most students take it, 
And many universities, the professor will come up and the first day or one of the early days in the class, he'll write up on the board uh, three statements. God is love. God is all-powerful. There's evil in the world. Three statements. God is loving. God is all-powerful. There's evil in the world. And he tells the students to look on the board and he says, any, any two of these statements can be true, but not all three. Which two do you believe in? And that poor student's sitting there, well, I, okay, I know there's evil in the world. So that's a given, okay? So now I'm left. God's all-powerful. God's all-loving. Which one do I believe in? Whichever one you believe in, you've now X'd out the Christian God because he's both. And the professor just told you, logically, reasonably, you can only have one of them. What is that professor forgetting? Answer. Is if God is all-loving and all-powerful, why is there evil in the world? Answer. Evil and suffering in the world are the result of people wrongly exercising their free will. Um, I think there is something missing in my notes here. And in your notes. Let me borrow your book. Thank you. Before we answer, if God's all-powerful and all-loving, why is there evil in the world? Um, notice several points. Number one, God created the world good, we're told in Genesis. It's very important to realize God did not make our world evil, and God did not make our world the way it is now. Something has happened in our world. He created it good. But God gave Adam the ability to either love and obey him or to rebel and to disobey him, Right? When Adam chose to sin, death and suffering entered the world. Adam had had, the fourth point, Adam had had dominion over the entire creation. And when he sinned, the entire creation was corrupted. Okay? God created the world good. God gave Adam a free will. He gave him a warning what would happen if he violated and made the wrong choice. And the truth is... Adam did make the wrong choice. I thank you. Back to my notes. Uh, and Adam did make the wrong choice. Thus we see that evil and suffering in the world, in other words, there's a third option. And maybe the professor ought to put up on the board, God is all loving, God is all powerful, man has free will, there's suffering and evil in the world. And now you can tell that student, all now you can say all four statements are indeed true. Suffering in the world is not the result of God as much as it is the result of us making our wrong choices. Now, I want to say something about free will before we look at it more deeply. Free will means that God gives us the ability to sin. It does not mean that He gives us the permission to sin. Right here at Ohio State, I remember... Uh, the first time some student said to me, it was just a few years back, and I, I'd never heard this before, and then I suddenly started to hear it campus after campus, day after day. People making this statement, yeah, that's some God. He gives us a free will, and then he sends us to hell for using it. Is that what God is like? Hey, you got a free will, use it. Ah, now you get to go to hell for using it. Ha, ha, ha. You know? And this is how some people would see God. Free will does not mean that God gives you the, that you're allowed to exercise it wrongly, 
but you have the ability. Here in America, I have the ability to go buy a gun and shoot and kill anyone I want. I don't have the permission to. I have the, the free will, the ability, but if I misuse my free will, if I do something I'm not permitted to do, there are consequences. And so free will does not mean God says you can do anything you want. Free will means that God lays before us choices. He tells us the rewards. He tells us the consequences. But he leaves the choices to us. And then he carries through on the reward or the consequence based on what he's promised. It's interesting to note that nearly all suffering is a direct result of someone disobeying God's commands. You ever thought about that? People ask, why is there evil? Why is there suffering in the world? Most suffering that we experience, it's because someone has directly disobeyed one of God's commandments. For example, sometimes I suffer because of a choice I make. There's a lot of suffering in the world today because people do things they know are destructive, destructive behaviors. Look at people who... uh, Uh, sexual behaviors that are destructive, alcohol and drugs that are destructive, smoking that can be destructive, Uh, all kinds of things that we get warned all the time about. Don't do this. It's bad for you. And yet we do it. Sometimes we suffer because of words we say. Sometimes we suffer because of, uh, uh, as a result of behaviors we choose to make. And most of us can understand that. We think that's fair of God. But then there comes a tougher thing. Sometimes I suffer because of a choice someone else makes. Those are the tough ones, aren't they? I mean, sometimes I, I know, for instance, uh, a friend of our family who is uh, a fine young lady, 19 years old, an athlete in college, a student, a fine GPA, a wonderful, wholesome, sweet young lady, was one day out riding on a motorcycle with some people and a drunk driver plowed into her, killed a couple of the others, And she's been severely damaged, both mentally and physically, confined to a wheelchair now for years, with little hope she'll ever recover. And you ask yourself, why? She wasn't off sinning. She didn't bring that upon herself. She was obeying the laws. She was doing everything right, and someone else hurt her. And although it's difficult to sometimes explain if you are the victim and by the way we've all been victims of someone else you may have been a victim of a violent crime we've all been victims of someone lying about us mistreating us uh backstabbing us gossiping about us uh we we all suffer from other people because god has created the world just like he desires a loving relationship with, between he and us, and we have the ability to use our free will to, to love him or to turn against him, likewise God has given us that same free ability to love our fellow man or to hurt our fellow man. God has not made us islands. God has made us social creatures. He's commanded us to love one another. But just like when he gave us the command to love him, He had to give us the ability to not love him or there would have been no real free choice. Likewise, when God tells us to love one another, he had to give us the ability to not love one another or there would have been no real free choice. Now, I will say this. Although I've been hurt by others and I've had things done to me that I wish others had never done and I 
and I might have been tempted to wonder where God was and to blame God. And God, why did you give someone the ability to hurt me? I've got to say that at the same time, I, I believe that in life, I've benefited a whole lot more than I suffered from other people. And so to keep it in perspective, if I'm going to say I don't want anyone to have the ability to hurt me, I'd also have to be able to say I don't want to have, let anyone have the ability to help me, right? I want to be an island all to myself. That means I only know what I t- teach myself. That means I, I sew my own clothes. Don't want to do that. That means I build my own automobile. That means I grow my own field. I food. I build my own house. The truth is, in my life, nearly every good thing I have is the, is the result of someone else doing something for me. And I'll bet it's the same with you. You were taught by someone. You, your, your, your food, your clothing, your shelter, your entertainment, your, your, uh, your car, your, everything we do, we are a community of human beings. And we have the ability to be a tremendous blessing to one another and to bring good into others' lives. But in giving us that ability, God also gave free moral agents, you and I, the ability not only to love other people, but to turn on them, to hate them, to hurt other people. It's the way it had to be. There's a third type of suffering, though, that that is also confusing. That's natural disasters. Where did they come from? Why would God create a world that allowed famine, earthquakes, tsunamis, and things like this? The answer, we're told that natural disasters really go back to a choice Adam made. In Genesis chapter 3, God cursed the creation because of Adam. It's interesting to note that, again, we'd say, well, why would he do that? Just like in our life now, there are effects that you and I have on other people, particularly those who are under our authority. What do I mean by that? Say I'm a bad father, and I, uh, you know, I, I'm, you know, I do everything wrong as a dad. Now that doesn't mean my kids have to go to hell or something because of me. Not at all. But it does mean that my children will experience consequences for my behavior. What if I drink, steal, end up in prison? Do my children have to go to prison because of what I did? No. Will they have a tougher life because of the way I've lived? Yes. The way we live affects that which is under our authority. Well, we read in Genesis that God put the whole earth under the authority of Adam. That he was to have dominion over the whole earth. And so when Adam chose to rebel against God, God ended up cursing the whole earth. The earth was affected. And so as Christians, we now believe that the source of suffering, the source of, uh, of, of calamities in our world is that God has cursed our earth, that no one will live forever in it, and that this earth will someday pass away. And as we read in Romans 8, that the earth is suffering and groaning under the corruption it's in, but someday our hope is that God will give a new heavens and a new earth in which there will be no suffering and no evil. There's another reason God allows suffering, I might add. And that is for God's glory to be fully seen. It was necessary for man to sin. For God's glory to be fully seen, it was necessary 
for man to sin. Every person will demonstrate for all of eternity one of two things. You and I will either demonstrate God's love and forgiveness or we will demonstrate God's wrath and justice. We will be an eternal object lesson of just how loving and forgiving God is or we'll be an eternal object lesson of just how much wrath and justice Almighty God has. And ultimately, we were not created just for our own good, our own happiness. It takes humility to realize this. But ultimately, we were created for the glory of God. You say, how will we be an eternal object lesson? I can, I can, see, um, I can see, you know, maybe you know, like, like a million years from tonight. A couple angels are strolling through the golden streets. They walk through the pearly gates. They're strolling down through the, 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 uh, the, the streets of heaven. And one angel says, isn't that Tom Short? And the other one says, by golly, it is. The first one says, wow, God really is forgiving. You know, God is merciful. Wow. And they'll see me in heaven, and they will praise God. They won't say, isn't that Tom? Wow, Tom sure was cool. And Tom had it together. They'll say, God was forgiving. And if you are in Christ, if he's your Savior, you will be an object lesson for all of the... All, all beings that have ever been to see you and to say, wow, God is a forgiving God. That's who you'll be. And if you're not in Christ, they'll, you know, they'll be, those angels will be strolling around. They're going, they'll look down into hell and say, oh, isn't that a... <laughs> and they'll, he'll say, by golly, that is... <laughs> and the first one will say, wow. God sure is just. He's getting what he deserves. He got away with it on earth. Look at all he got away with. Look at all he, look at all he, he, he did on earth and, and no consequences. And now he's getting what he deserves. And just like we'll praise God for his mercy and his forgiveness and say, wow, we'll praise God that he brings evil to justice. And when we think of evil and suffering in the world, we can be confident of that, which leads to our next point. We can rejoice to realize God will someday punish all evil. You know what I've come to realize? Years ago, I used to get asked this question about why does God allow, allow suffering? Uh, why does a good God allow suffering in the world? And it seems like many years ago when I'd hear that question, it was... It, it was kind of a general, I mean, people were thinking primarily of natural disasters or these big, terrible things that have happened. Uh, you know, why would God allow a holocaust? Why would God allow a famine? You know, it would be things like this. And, and often it was something way out there. But nowadays it seems to be far more personal. It seems that when people are asking the question, why would a loving God allow suffering and evil in the world? They're referring to themselves. I remember I was at Ball State University a few years ago, and this young, and by the way, this relates back to the last session about finding out real reasons, and, and uh, the, the one that sounds good, the real reason. And a young lady was uh, debating me and challenging me all afternoon, 
and, and we were going back and forth on reasons for the existence of God and some of the things that I've covered in this session. And we just, she just challenged me. We kept going back and forth. The next day when I came onto campus, she was there waiting for me before I got started. And she kind of struck up a personal conversation with me. She said, Tom, you know, I used to believe just like you. And I said, really, what happened? She said, well, I was about 10 years old. And, um, and a man was molesting me. And I prayed to God that it would stop. Oh, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed it would stop. And it didn't. And so I guess I concluded that either there's no God or He doesn't hear my prayers or He's not powerful enough to stop it. Either way, I, no matter which of those three was true, I'd be an atheist. Either He's not there or He doesn't care about me or He's not strong enough to do anything about it. And I found that often this, this idea of why does a good God allow suffering in the world is now more and more it's intensely personal. Because people who have suffered personally and, and in, our, in our culture, they've been pained, they're hurt, and they wonder, where was God? Why didn't He stop this? We can rejoice to realize that God will someday punish all evil. He will. If you have been the victim of something and, and, uh, and you, you say, why, why is the, where's the justice? Where's the fairness? Why aren't I taken care of? What, what's going on here? If you've been a victim, you can be confident, you can be sure that God will someday per, uh, punish all evil. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with desiring that. There's nothing wrong. The, the Bible says don't take your own vengeance. Isn't that what it says in Romans 12? Never take your own vengeance. But what's the, next, what's the second half of the verse? Leave room for the wrath of God for he has said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You can let it go. It's hard, I know. And you may be resentful, you may have pain, you may hurt. You can let it go because you know that though you can't, it, there's nothing you can do. You can know that God will settle the score someday. Finally, we can realize this when we think of suffering and evil. With God, good can come. From evil with God good can come from evil uh, in the Bible we read the story of Joseph and Joseph was uh, uh, a young man and God had given him this great uh, visions of his future and his brothers became jealous and his brothers uh, one day they took him and they beat him and they threw him in a pit they were gonna leave him there to die and then they got a better idea because a caravan came by from Egypt of, and they included some slave traders. And they said, why leave them to die? Let's sell them into slavery in Egypt. And they sold them and made money off their kid brother, sold him as a slave. He went down to Egypt where he was mistreated and where he was wrongly judged and wrongly accused. But God was with him. And God took what happened and 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 in the refining fire of the dungeon and the slavery that he was in, Joseph learned about God and he learned to know God and God began to give him wisdom and knowledge and Joseph became recognized in that dungeon by interpreting dreams that God had given to leaders and uh, the Pharaoh even and one day Josh or, or uh, 
one day, um, Jacob, is that right? Am I telling the right story? One day, Jacob was um, Joseph. I knew, okay. Let's start with a J. One day, Joseph became the second command of the whole nation. And then there was a famine back in the land of Israel. And his brothers needed to come beg for food. And they didn't know it was Joseph. Joseph knew they were his brothers. And rather than take vengeance, rather than get even, and rather than just let them starve, he wept and he prayed. Why did he weep and why did he pray? Because suddenly he realized that God had let him be sold as a slave into Egypt and go through all these years of trial in order to be raised up to this post of, of honor to save his country from starvation. And when his brothers felt that, that maybe he was going to get even and throw them in prison and maybe kill them, his answer was, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. If you are a Christian and you ask this question, why does God let me suffer? Why does God let there be trials and difficulties and hardships in my life? If you're asking that question, you need to have the attitude of Joseph. You meant it for evil. Someone meant to hurt you. But God is bigger than that person. God is bigger than that circumstance. God meant it for good. To bring about a, a blessing. Now one final quick point, if I could. So often, and I think back to this young lady at Ball State University, when I think of suffering, I believe that God's heart breaks when we suffer. But I believe we have an adversary, the devil, who delights to see us suffer. And I, I had to think back to what, what would have been going on in the eternal unseen realm when this young girl was telling us of her being molested. I can only imagine that there were tears in God's eyes and there was glee on the face of Satan. I can only imagine Satan was, yeah, get her. And God was, oh, brokenhearted. She was a victim of this. But when she chose to blame God, the one who was brokenhearted over her suffering, I think she brought more glee to Satan and more pain to the heart of God. Can I encourage, if you suffer in life, and we all do, some more than others obviously, but we all suffer, can I encourage that if you suffer and it seems so wrong and it seems so unjust and you can't understand it, that you never let your suffering, if, if it makes you angry, fine. Just don't get angry at God. Get angry at Satan. God is on your side. God is the one who loves you. God is the one whose heart is breaking with you. Get angry at Satan. He's the one who's delighting that someone is disobeying God. He's the one who's tempting people to sin. You're suffering because of sin, and that sin did not come from God. It came from Satan. You want to get angry? Get angry. But get angry at Satan. Don't get angry at God. Let's close in prayer if we could. Father in heaven, we thank you that you're there. And we thank, Lord, of some of these things that, that cause some to question you be so personal and they relate to such deep pain that we experience in our hearts. And so I pray, Lord, tonight for anyone who's here, anyone who's listening, and, and, and that right now, 
if we have blamed you, if we have turned against you for our suffering, for our pain, and we've, we've judged you, and we've laid the blame at your feet, Father, we ask your forgiveness. We thank you that your heart was breaking when you saw us suffering. In the same way we know your heart must have been breaking when you saw Jesus suffering on the cross. Lord, help us to redirect our anger towards the enemy of our souls. And help us to take the pain we have felt and, and let it draw us closer to you, not further away from you, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.